Welcome once again to Benchwork, a podcast designed to provide you with knowledge, experiences, tools, and ideas about venture capital, entrepreneurship, and finance. Interviews and conversations with top-notch global experts will take place every week, hosted by me, Hector Shibata, Director of Investments and Portfolio at Daisy Ventures, a global corporate venture capital fund, an associate professor for entrepreneurial finance and venture capital. Don't forget to follow us for more content on Medium, LinkedIn, and Twitter as ACB underscore BC. With no more to say, hope you enjoy this episode. So hi everyone, thank you for being today with us. It's a pleasure to have Antoine Colaco. Antoine, thank you so much for taking the time and speak with us. Absolutely. So Antoine, you're a partner at Valor Capital. Let's start the conversation. Who's Antoine? Could you please let us know a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Um, I, uh, so I have a little bit of a strange background. I'm, I'm half French and half Indian. Uh, so I was born in France and born in Paris, and then I grew up the, most of my life in the United States. Uh, but I was an immigrant to the U.S., uh, as were my parents. Um, and then, uh, you know, I studied uh, mechanical and aerospace engineering and public and international affairs, uh, but then really didn't use either one of them. I went into healthcare consulting. Uh, and then from there, I moved to, uh, to Singapore to do project finance. Uh, that was right as the Asian currency crisis hit. So I did more debt restructuring than actually lending of money. I came back to the US to do my MBA. Uh, and then I moved out to Silicon Valley in 2000 to work for Goldman Sachs to do tech banking. Again, not a very good time to be doing tech banking in 2000, if everyone remembers the, the, the tech bubble burst. Um, and then I went over to Yahoo to do business development. And then I, from there, I went to a small company uh, to do to start up an analytics organization, and the company is called Google. And um, and from and there, I was spent nine years there and uh, did a number of different things. From as I said, starting up an analytics organization. Cheryl uh, uh, Sandberg, who's the CEO of Facebook, was the person who hired me to do that. Soon after that, I proposed to our founders and to the CEO that we open up an operation in India. They asked me if I was going to do that, so I couldn't say no after being at the company for four months. And so I moved to India, spent a year in India, setting up our operations there from scratch, which is, I believe, the largest operation outside the U.S. now. And, um, and then did the same thing throughout, uh, throughout Latin America. So I opened up the Mexico City, Sao Paulo, Buenos Aires offices. Um, and then most of my work after that was in Asia and Latin America. So I became COO of our region, which was Asia and Latin America. When we split out the two regions, I became COO of Asia, moved to Singapore. And then... Um, and my last role was uh, head of strategy and operations for global business development. So, uh, and then, and then in 2012, well, late 2011, I got a call from a friend saying, you know, we want to start this venture business in Brazil. Uh, do you want to join and, and be, you know, uh, one of the original partners of this of this venture? And it took me a while to agree to leave uh, Google and to to do this, but uh, in the end, I decided to join uh, almost exactly nine years ago. And since then, we've built out our, our venture business. Uh, we have uh, three early stage funds and one later stage fund so far. Wow, that's a, that's an amazing career. Thank you for sharing that. So, how do you how do you like venture capital? I mean, first of all, how would you describe venture capital for those that doesn't know that much about VC? 
Uh, look, I mean, I think venture capital is about obviously um, the primary thing is is investing in 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 bright uh, and bright people and good companies uh, and trying to help them grow their businesses. That's the fundamental thing we do. We obviously have limited partners who are investors who you know uh, insure us with their money and trust us with their money to to find good returns and good good companies to invest in. And it's our job to really find those companies. Uh, get themes that we like, themes that we think are important, uh, and find uh, strong entrepreneurs that we think can build very sustainable long-term businesses and invest in them and, and help them grow their businesses. So that's fundamentally what we do. Uh, why do I like it? I think it, um, you know, look, first of all, it's a great, it, it's great that I get to see different kinds of business models on a weekly, daily basis, right? I mean, I get to see young people who are creating really interesting companies and businesses all, all the time. Um, well, that's a, I mean, you know, from an interesting, from an interest perspective, that's, that's, you know, that's excellent. Um, on top of that, you need you get to work with phenomenally smart people, uh, and no two days are the same. Uh, and then on top of that, hopefully, uh, you know, I can add value to, to the companies through my experience, through my network, uh, through the partnerships that we have and so on and, and help these businesses grow. Uh, and as a result, you know, I think we've, you know, we, uh, we've worked with phenomenal people. We've help them build phenomenal businesses. Uh, and they've hired, you know, thousands and thousands of people and employed a number of people throughout Brazil and hopefully made things better in Brazil overall through some of the companies that we built. So let's start with the beginning. So as, as a VC fund, obviously you look for projects in, in which you can invest. How do you look for those projects? How do you engage with entrepreneurs in, in terms of discovering and finding the right startup for you? Yeah, look, I think there are a number of different ways. Some, uh, some companies come to us directly. Sometimes through our network, we get referred uh, different companies. Uh, and that's usually our best, uh, our best uh, companies usually come through referral through either our investors or through other entrepreneurs that we've invested in, things like that. Um, and sometimes we go out and proactively find them. And I think that revolves around creating a, an investment thesis around certain verticals. We, we we basically figure out some verticals that we think are very uh, important or going to be large verticals within the market. And then we also, within that, we have sub themes within that. So we looked at, for example, education and what are, the edu what are some of the themes in education? For us early on, we looked at that and we said, look, we think in Brazil, there are four major themes that we wanna invest in. One was English language learning. One was um, uh, education, continuing education for employability. One was around university education and one was around test prep. And we made four investments in our first fund, which, which mirrored those themes. Uh, and we found companies in those areas. So if we hadn't found them already, we could, um, you know, we could uh, go out and look for them and, 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 and try to source them ourselves. And when you have a project, how do you analyze the project? Or what are the key considerations that you look at at any startup? Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's, this is more art than science, especially early stage venture, right? I mean, you don't have a lot of financials that you can count on for years and years and so on. Oftentimes it's, it's you know, you've got to look at the team. How good is the team? How strong is the team? Uh, do, do we believe that they have the skills to put together and create a big business around this? Um, is the market large enough uh, that they're going after? Uh, is there a, you know, what's the competitive landscape within that market? Do they have major competitors? Can they be? Can they create something better? Is their technology better? Um, 
it, can they create what's called a moat around their business and that that's protected, you know, something that you can protect your business um, against comp competition or is this something that anyone can do any day? Um, and then, uh, you know, I think so size of size of the market has to be large enough uh, as, as well as competitive landscape. And then, you know, depending on what stage the company's in, do they have a product that has product market fit? Have they proven that the product is something that consumers, users want? Um, because it can be the most impressive sort of product that you have out there, but if no one's going to pay for it, it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, it's a, you can't create a you can't create a business off of that. Um, so I think that's that's another piece to it. Um, so that you know, there are a number of different factors. We also personally we look at we want to be able to add value to our company. So there has to be a thesis around value add that our, the Valor can bring to it. Um, and one of the interesting things that we do because we are a cross border fund, um, we look at models both in Brazil and outside of Brazil that could enter the Brazilian market. And we also try to use our experience from a number of different markets to see if there are patterns that we can recognize or other models that have worked in other, in other markets and that can be relevant to the Brazilian market. So there are a number of different things we look at. We also do, you know, we try to do checks on the, the entrepreneurs through our network, try to get a sense of how, you know, how strong they are. We also do, um, you know, we also, if we're not total experts in an industry, we also tap into our network as well for that as well to, to understand. The one thing you have to be careful in tech is that, you know, when you, if you are investing in a company that is disruptive, oftentimes if you go to ask an industry expert about it, they will say, oh no, this can't work because it hasn't been done this way for a long time. Well, part of that's because you are disrupting an industry that people who have been in an industry for so long will not see it automatically as working. So we've actually had those situations where we've gone back to people and said, you know, we want to invest in this and, and an industry expert says, oh no, that's never going to work. And we still invest in it sometimes because we want to, you know, we believe that the, the disruption can happen. And this company, this team is the one that can disrupt that industry. Okay, got it, understood. And, and one of the elements that you mentioned at the very beginning is the team, the people. And, and a lot of people, especially as you pointed out at the very beginning, it's one of the most important aspects. Do you have in mind specific characteristics about the team? And also, do you prefer like a team that has many co-founders or do you also invest in a solo founder? Uh, so there is no single um, characteristic of founders. I mean, I think we want to see, you know, you want to, you want, when we talk to them, I think we try to try to understand a few things. A, how well do they understand the industry that they're going after? Uh, B, how, you know, do we get a sense of how um, thoughtful they are in their approach to going after the problem? C is also, you know, how have they shown in their past history any kind of sense of being able to be flexible? Because what you find is as an entrepreneur, the path that you go down the first time is probably not going to be the, the end path that you go down because it's, you know, you have to be adaptable to change and, and how well do you do with that change? How well can you, can you adapt to market conditions changing, competitive landscape changing, what have you? Again, there's no perfect way of testing this out, um, but it, these are things that we try to, try to glean in our, in our conversations with them uh, and you get a sense for people as well. And this is also what some of the stuff that we do in our background checks on, on the entrepreneurs is kind of get examples from people that have worked with them in the past to understand how they've shown that, that ability in, the, in other ways. Uh, to your question regarding solo founders, uh, I don't think we necessarily have anything against a solo founder. 
Um, but typically, you know, if uh, if it is a business solo founder, then we are oftentimes want to be very involved in helping them find the technical co-founder very quickly. Uh, because a lot of these businesses, we invest in technology companies, you have to have a technologist um, and that's critical. So it's, um, we have looked at things and gone very far along with uh, a business co-founder, but always kind of as part of the, as part of the process is, do they have a line to, you know, do they have certain people that they have lined up for potential technical co-founders? We interview those people as well before we make the investment. So we want to make sure that we are really have a better sense of what the team that, you know, even if, it's, even, if it's, even if it's early is going to look like. And oftentimes most of the people that come to us are, uh, are not just single founders, they're multi, you know, they're co-founders with either two, three people, four people sometimes. Okay. Another key aspect about startups is that, you know, at the very beginning, typically they start thinking about a business model. And at some point in time, many startups, they pivot in order to, you know, to do something different, completely different or something, you know, changing the business model or whatever. When that happens, do you have a different view in how, in how to evaluate the business model or how to engage and support the entrepreneurs when you are invested already in the company? Yeah, if we're already invested in the company, um, typically, and you would hope this happens, is that if they're going to pivot, you have been part of that journey with them to understand why they need to pivot and which direction they're pivoting to. So, um, you know, the way I think about it is as investors, we, we are active investors. It doesn't mean we are running the company by any means. It doesn't mean that we're going to force our will upon the company. It's, you know, we are investing in the people, as we said, and they, they are the ultimate deciders of what happens. But we wanna have, I think what's important is to have an open and uh, honest communication uh, with our founders. And I think that, that's on many levels, you know, for very early stage companies, uh, I oftentimes have call, you know, weekly or biweekly check-ins with them just to get a sense of what's the latest in the business. Do they have questions? What, how can I help, et cetera. Um, and then, uh, uh, um, and then, you know, as they're later, as they go on in their, in their evolution, uh, I sometimes, you know, in many times, in many cases I'm on the boards. Uh, and so I'm in constant communication with the company. So, if a company pivots, it should not come as a surprise to us. If so, then we've done something wrong in our relationship with the, with the founders, frankly. And if they're pivoting, it's gotta be, there's gotta be a reason for it. And we, we have all have a good understanding of why and what does that mean and what is the direction that they wanna take as a result. So that's kind of the way um, we think about it. Uh, and you know, if they're pivoting, as I said, by that point, we should be aligned with them and we should be, uh, have had the discussion of why they're pivoting and what that means, and then how can we can help them do that, uh, and uh, and hopefully we're on the same page about what that means, and 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 we are very actively involved in helping them. But you know, again, I think uh, if you're not used to this industry and you think about pivoting constantly, you know, people are like, oh my gosh, that's a failure. It's not a failure, right? You, you're going into it with a hypothesis. That hypothesis has to be proven, and oftentimes, just like in science, you know you find that you went down one path and that taught you something and you need to do a, a turn and figure out something another direction. That's very common in our industry. And it's actually, you know, something we often expect. And that's why you, you know, when you're talking to the people that, who are leading this business, you need to be comfortable that they can take those changes and make those changes as, as appropriate. 
one of the key elements for any startup is the capital, the money, it's, it's the blood. So obviously entrepreneurs, they raise capital at different stages. Uh, when is the right timing to raise capital? And how would you describe the capital raising process for entrepreneurs? Sure. Um, if you are starting a business and you have an idea uh, and you essentially do what's called a friends and family or you get people around you who are willing to put a little bit of money into you and you give them some equity in your company and that allows you to get just to get the business off the ground, figure out you know, what you need to do to start the business. Um, from there, then you can go to the seed round and then there's series A, B, C, and then all the letters after that, right? Um, I think what's important is as you start the business is to understand what are your capital needs at each stage of the business um, and uh, how much will you need and make sure that you get enough that you have some buffer. So one of the things that sometimes is a mistake that people make is they, they raise a round and they say, oh, I'm gonna have enough for six to 12 months. Six to 12 months is actually not a long time because it goes by very quickly when you're doing a startup. And you may, you know, again, if you, if you pivot or if you have any changes, you need a buffer in which you can have that ability to change because it also sometimes to fundraise can take you two, three months at least, right? So if you have 12 months, you're going back out fundraising eight to nine months from now. How much will you have proven by then? How much will you have uh, shown in the business to get an increase in the valuation, to be able to have those conversations with people to show how much uh, progress you've made since, since your last investment. So I think, you know, what I recommend is when you're fundraising, raise enough capital that will really that will get you through 18 to 24 months at least, uh, including if you are increasing your burn, if you're increasing the spend on, on different partnerships or things like that. So make sure that you have that buffer so that you can raise that money. And there are times when you raise money when actually you may not need it. Sometimes you get preempted. Sometimes an investor comes to you and says, I really love your business. I want to invest now. And you're like, we're not, we're not raising. And sometimes it's best to, you know, if that's an investor that you trust, that you like, uh, it can save you all the time to do the, the fundraising. And, you know, you can get them, you know, sometimes it's better to get the money when you can, frankly, because, uh, you know, you'd rather get it than when you need it sometimes. Um, but again, it has to be, the relationship has to be right. Um, the relationship between an entrepreneur and an investor is almost like a marriage because you're going to be in it for years together. And so you, you know, we, we look, we kind of investigate our entrepreneurs and make sure it's good for us. In the same way, we encourage entrepreneurs to get research about us. Are we the right fit for them? Are we the right kind of investors that they want to work with in the long run? I think that's very important is you don't just take money, you take the money that's going to matter to you. And so when you go out for fundraising, you should also know what you want out of your investors. Like what is the right kind of investor for you? Is it someone who's gonna bring you connections for sales? Is it somebody who's gonna help you grow, grow out of your home market to another market? Is it somebody who is going to be able to be investor with you for many, you know, many rounds afterwards? What is it that you're looking for? So don't just take easy money, don't just take simple money, but think about how when you're fundraising, what is an ideal composition of investors that you want who are they? Do your research on the investors as well as part of the process. And as a first-time entrepreneur, what, what do you need to do in order to establish a solid network with entrepreneurs? Do you have any recommendations? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I think um, I think it's very important that you connect with, uh, and look, 
you know, people say entrepreneurship can be one of the one of the loneliest jobs in the world sometimes because you feel like you're on an island, you are leading an organization, you are change, you know, things are changing a lot, and you sometimes don't feel like you have anyone to rely on because you're the head of the, the company, right? You have no one else to kind of look up to in some ways. I don't think that's always true, but it feels that way. Um, so I think what's very important is to make sure you have a network of other similar entrepreneurs because I think everyone goes through these issues and it's always good to bounce ideas off with them. And there are networks, right? In, in every country, there are networks of entrepreneurs. Uh, either there are startup networks of entrepreneurs, um, there are groups like Endeavor who are throughout, you know, throughout the world who are very strong and, and connect entrepreneurs together. So I think finding the, those, those entrepreneurs is very useful. I think also um, having a mentor, you know, having somebody who you trust from a business sense, but also just on a personal note that can, you can just kind of count on to call up and say, look, I had an awful day today. This went wrong, this went wrong, this went wrong. And you can bounce ideas off with this person. And this person is not judging you, but is going to give you good advice, but also just, you know, calm your nerves sometimes. I think that's also oftentimes something very helpful for entrepreneurs as well. And then, you know, if you have investors, tap into your investors. Your investors are not there only to hear the good things. They're here, they're there to hear the bad things as well. Um, and so I think having that good relationship with your entrepreneurs is something that's critical as well. What are the, the key mistakes that for typically first-time entrepreneurs do when they approach a, an investor? Um, mistakes, I think, are... First of all, know who you're who, who you're talking to. Do the research on the investor, because if you go to an investor and you don't know anything about the companies that they've invested in already, you've never talked to anybody who's you know taken their money and worked with them. I think you're at a disadvantage, and it's it's always worthwhile to understand who you're talking to on this other side, right? I mean, so I think that's very important. Um, uh, I think also, you know, I think practicing your pitch. And there are strategies around this that some, some I, I've talked to some entrepreneurs who say, look, I will go and, and pitch to, uh, you know, I have a whole list of, I have a whole list of investors. And some of them will say, look, these are my most important, these are the ones that I really want, want to get. These are the ones that are in the middle. And then these are the ones that, you know, are not my, not at the top of my list. And I will go out and actually talk to those investors that are not at the top of my list first to be able to hone my pitch because I get to practice it with them and I get to hear what, what sounds well, what resonates well and what doesn't, and I can then modify and, and, and do it that way. So I think, you know, it's, you know, as with anything, it's, it's, it's a matter of practice and it's a matter of listening, frankly, also. Listen to what investors are telling you. You may, you may think they're absolutely wrong, but they also may be hearing something that you're not trying to explain to them. And so if they're hearing that, how do you change your pitch? How do you modify that? And how do you really be responsive to that? I think is important as well. And so it's important to know who you are talking to, uh, what their, you know, what their expertise is, and um, and what, uh, you know, what angle they're coming from, and why um, they, you know, they are the right investor for you, or uh, and, and listen to what their feedback is. Again, we we investors are not perfect by any means, right? And we are not we. You know your business better than we do. So all we can give you is advice. We can give you, uh, you know, we can tell you what we've heard before. We can, uh, or what we've seen before and lessons that we've learned before. And, um, and, then, and then, you know, it's up to you to take that and decide what to do with it. But I think it's important that, you know, 
you take it for what it's worth and um, and learn from that, you know, and, and, and have a conversation. Don't be turned off always if someone is, um, you know, if someone's challenging you, take up the challenge and, 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 and learn from it. I think it's an important thing. Don't get, I, I think it, you know, one of the things that entrepreneurs sometimes do is just get very frustrated very quickly because they hear no a lot. Um, and that's part of the industry. That's part of the business. That's part of what you're going to deal with. Don't let it get you down. If you have passion for what you're doing and you really believe in what you're doing, you should be willing to, um, to, to kind of fight through that and get and, and, and ex really explain and, and have the passion. And I think, you know, if you're passionate about what you're doing and you can show that, I think uh, investors really love to see that as well. I have, I have seen entrepreneurs that when they are racing, they don't have a financial model or they don't have unit economics and they approach investors. Are there certain type of things that you require to see when you meet with, a, with an entrepreneur, such as you know, having unit economics, financial model, and so on? We definitely, um, uh, so we will want a model for sure. I mean, so it, it, earlier stage, the model is gonna be much more uh, loose, but we will want a financial model for sure. Uh, so even if they come to us, we will, and they don't have one, we will ask them to create one for us because we need to understand what do you believe are the, um, the drivers of your business? How well do you understand them? How realistic are they? And then if you modify those, you know, well, how, what does that do to the, to the results? So that's, that's one thing we want. We also want a pitch deck. We want a deck to explain what are you doing? What, what is the, what's the, what's, what's the business model that you're, that you're, that you're going under? Um, and how can you explain it in a way that we can we can um, understand it, right? Uh, so that those are all things that we expect to be able to see. And what's what's the, the, the do you have any tips? Because you know, obviously, the entrepreneur sends you the teaser or the investor deck. Then you you have a you know a meeting with the entrepreneur and have the pitch. What's the best way to follow up with the investor? Um. So I, I will say oftentimes what we do is when we, um, when we have a, so the first thing is, you know, if you have a connection to the VC, that is going to be more, that is going to be the most valuable way to, for them to look at your deck. I mean, we get, we get, I don't know how many decks a week, we get probably 30 or 40 companies reaching out to us every week, right, uh, throughout our team. And so if you have a, if you have a way to get a connection, an inter, inter, introduction, that's first of all going to be the best way to get in to a VC. Once you've had the pitch and once you've had that meeting with them, um, you know, I think oftentimes there are a couple of things that happen. Either, either the, uh, the VC says, I'm really interested in this. Let's, you know, let's set up another conversation really quickly. Great. You can follow up on that way. Sometimes you can, they tell you, you know, interesting um, and let's get back to you. Uh, and you have to understand that the VCs are seeing so many decks, so many so much information that sometimes things get, get lost or fall through the cracks, et cetera. So my recommendation is to follow up within, call it a week, week's time, just to say, you know, wanted to touch base, wanted to see, um, you know, if you had any next steps, what your thoughts were and so on. Um, I think is always a valid thing to do. I think sometimes entrepreneurs are scared to do that because then it'll push someone away. If, if, if there is a business that we are interested in, we are not going to say no because you've reached out to us, right? There's no, that's not the way it works. Um, and so uh, 
that is, uh, I think, you know, a little bit of a misconception is that you're pushing the VC too, too much. Now, sometimes what you'll find is sometimes you'll get into this loop with VCs where you've been discussing and discussing and it's not, it doesn't seem to be progressing to a final conclusion like yes or no answer. And that sometimes gets hard. And that's where you, you feel awkward about, do I push them to make an answer or not? Oftentimes then, you know, frankly, uh, scarcity makes, uh, makes things move faster. So if you have another investor that's, that's moving, moving faster, you can also indicate, look, I really want to work with you, but you know, these conversations are, are moving faster with this other, uh, other firm. I just want to let you know. And I also just want to be honest with you and then, and then, you know, understand your timelines. You know, I wouldn't lie about that. I think that's very bad. Your reputation is very important, but if there is another VC that, or another fund that's looking at you and is creating some momentum, that always moves people faster, frankly. And, and obviously, as, as you pointed out, as an entrepreneur, you're, you're speaking with multiple investors, not only one investor. Absolutely. And at the end, your goal is first of all, to get a term sheet, right? That's, that's what you want to have. How do you get a term sheet from, from an investor? I mean, look, when you are, when you're raising your, your round, you typically will go and say, look, this is how much money we're trying to raise. Um, and you know, sometimes you'll tell them what, what form that is, if it's a convertible note or if you want to do a priced round or what have you. And then they will often come back to you after, you know, if, if they're interested, they will come back to you and say, um, you know, we, we'd like to invest. Uh, we want to take this much of the round. So if it's a $5 million round, we want to put $3 million in. Uh, and you can find you know, other investors to fill out the rest of the round. Uh, and these are the terms. And, 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 and if, it depends. Sometimes people will put in a formal term sheet and then you'll negotiate off of that term sheet. Sometimes people will say, here are the general terms we're thinking of. Does that sound right to you? If, uh, if not, then, we, then they negotiate it. And then we send you the formal term sheet with the financials in there and then all the terms of the term sheet, um, which are standard kind of things that would go in the document in the round. Uh, and so that's how it, it, it naturally progresses to a term sheet. I don't think you, as an entrepreneur, you don't really need to ask for a term sheet because it'll, if, an if, a, if a VC is interested, they will offer it, they will present you with a term sheet uh, to, to, to invest in your company. And what happens after the term sheet? Then it comes the due diligence or what, what's next? Yeah, so in parallel, you'll do due diligence and you'll do the documents at the same time. So you'll have the lawyers, your, the entrepreneur will have a lawyer and, and the, the VC will have a lawyer. Uh, one, of them, one of the two will, um, will uh, draft the first, will send out the first draft of the documents based on the term sheet. Typically the term sheet will indicate, um, you know, we ask for a certain amount of fees of lawyer's fees to be covered for, by, the, by the company uh, and that, that's already known. Um, and then all the, you know, the general terms should be in the term sheet off of which they're creating those documents. In parallel, if there are any due diligence items that are still outstanding, we will, will work on those due diligence items uh, while, the, while the documents are being written up. Okay, and then it's, it's just a closing, right? Yeah, and then after the, after the documents have been negotiated and everything's been finalized, then we sign. Okay, and, and most of the times, you have a syndicate participating in the transaction, right? Or Correct. are there many times that you have only one investor uh, in, you know, putting all the money in, in the table? We've, we've done both, but more often than not, it's a, syndicate, it's a syndicated deal where we have multiple investors. Um, sometimes that's because it depends on which round you come in. There may be other, there may be previous investors who have pro rata rights, which means that they still get, uh, they have the right to invest the same percentage in the round as they have of the company. 
Um, and so they'll follow on into that next round. Um, and also to be honest with you, sometimes, you know, for our sake, it's always good to have more good people at the table with us. So if we, if there are, you know, sometimes, you know, we each, each investor brings some something uh, to the table. And I think it's useful to have uh, multiple people at the table who can add value to the company. Um, so uh, that's why oftentimes you'll see syndicated deals. And who put together the syndicate, the, the, the VC fund or the, or, the, or the entrepreneur? Look, in the end, it's the entrepreneur who runs, who runs the financing round. But uh, we oftentimes will be involved in that as well. So, you know, we will say we, if, if they, because they've been talking to several um, funds at once, uh, they can bring other, you know, if they will find a lead investor who will lead the round, but then oftentimes you'll, through those discussions, they'll find followers in, into the round as well. So they'll have small investors who want to put smaller checks into the round. Um, but sometimes it's also, we can bring in investors ourselves who are in our network, who we think would be very valuable to them. And so sometimes we've brought in investors and said, you know, we're going to lead the round, but we're, we, this investor is very valuable to us and think we, you know, and, and, and is open to, to coming into this round and we'll bring them in as well. So it can go either way. A lot of entrepreneurs are afraid about dilution. Uh, how, how, how do you need to approach dilution as an entrepreneur since you're going to be raising capital multiple times? Yeah. So what I would recommend, and I've seen this mistake happen is unfortunately, I've seen entrepreneurs get diluted way too early. So they, they give up 30% of the company, 40%. I've even seen 50% of the company in the, in the initial seed round. That's, an, that's a very, very difficult thing because you, you typically will get diluted at least through two or three rounds at around 20%. It's typical for a round to be 20% of the value of the company. Um, so if you start off in the first round by giving up half the company, you know, once you dilute another 10%, uh, you're down to 40%. Sorry, if you do dilute 20%, you're down to 40%, you know, and then and then beyond that, you keep on going. So I think I think it's reasonable to expect to be diluted 15 to 20% per round, maybe even 20 up to 25. Beyond that, I think you're getting really, really uh, heavily diluted, and I would I would avoid that. Now, if you do find yourself in one of those situations, there are things that you can do to to solve that. And I think good investors do try to solve that for 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 entrepreneurs because frankly. It's in our best interest that the entrepreneurs have a good incentive to make this company successful, right? If the entrepreneur owns 2% of the company, you know, they could leave very easily and, and that's not good for us as investors. So there are ways that you can, you can uh, you know, increase an option pool uh, as, as part of a round and give the, 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 the founders back some shares through an option pool or through an, you know, a grant or things like that. And, and I think that's a conversation that, that we've had definitely with, with entrepreneurs and that, or sometimes we've told the entrepreneur we wanna do this because we, we need, you need to have a higher stake of ownership in the company. Um, but as an entrepreneur, you definitely, it is a balance between, um, between dilution and your ownership and so on. Um, but again, part of that also goes to what's the size of the round you're raising, what's the valuation you're gonna get and making sure that you are, your business is going to get you the valuation you need for the size round you, you want, and then therefore not getting too much dilution. Okay. From time to time, from time to time, I, I see entrepreneurs that hire bankers, investment bankers or advisors for the capital raising process. Yep. Is it really worth it? Or do they need to do the heavy lifting and do it by themselves? I will say our best companies have never used bankers. 
for fundraising. Um, they, you know, I think if you have a very good business, you don't need a banker to explain it to people um, or a business model. I think you, typically we have not seen them need a, needing bankers. Um, you know, I think sometimes, sometimes I think the value comes um, from bankers having connections to a number of different investors that, that the founders may not have had. Uh, but that goes back to what we were discussing earlier, which is building out your network. Uh, and being an entrepreneur is a lot about networking in some cases, network with, networking with other entrepreneurs, networking with investors uh, and, and, and advisors and things like that. So as an entrepreneur, you really have to be proactive in making your building your network to be able to do those things. And so I think if you, um, you know, if it comes to that point where you need a banker, it may be because you just haven't built out your network large enough uh, to do that. Um, but hopefully you can you can build that yourself and, and not necessarily need to need the bankers. Again, I don't know what the fees are that they're charging for that, but that's an, you know, it's an additional cost that you're incurring as a result of that. So um, if you do your job of kind of connecting with entrepreneurs, connecting with investors, you should, uh, you should not have to uh, should you, you shouldn't have to have a banker necessarily how, how different is raising capital in developed economies such as in the US vis-a-vis -vis emerging economies such as latin mm. look i mean i think there's more capital generally speaking in a market like the US right i mean there's just more cap more vcs more capital out there um so in some ways it's easier. Uh, and I think people are willing to take potentially more risks. So, so invest in things that could be complete pie in the sky ideas here. You know, so I don't think you know, flying cars would have been invested in, in Latin America, right? I mean, I think that had to come out of a market like the US or, or, or Europe, right? The, that's just, uh, I think the risk tolerance is even, even though venture capital is a risky asset class and, and so on, there's still, I think there's still a spectrum within that as to what kinds of companies could come out of certain markets. Um, uh, so, but I think that, I think things are changing though. I think, I think Latin America is more on the, on the map than it was when we started this nine years ago, right? I mean, I think at that time, you know, even in Brazil, when, you know, the economists had the Cristo, which was shooting off, uh, off, the, off the page, there were a number of investors from the U.S. who went down to Brazil and put, you know, threw some money at deals. But then when things turned, they left very quickly, right? Um, I, uh, I, but I, now I think people are realizing how large the market is in Latin America, and it's not one market. There are multiple countries there, but there's a lot of opportunity. Um, and you know, you look at a, at a market like Brazil, where we are, with you know over 200 million people in a country. Uh, you know, it's it's a massive market. Uh, and you have some of the largest, you know, you have global size markets within Brazil. And then you look at the rest of Latin America, you know, you look at Mexico, you look at Colombia, which has a lot of entrepreneurship happening right now. You look at Argentina, which has phenomenal uh, technical talent and so on. And so you're seeing people are, are noticing that more now, I think. Um, and so, so I think you've got more international investors willing to go and, and look and put money into, into Latin America. And if you look at the numbers, of how much money has been invested in, in Latin America, the numbers have, have have grown dramatically over the last nine years. Um, so there's there's more access to capital now for sure, um, and you're seeing a whole growth of the ecosystem, which is exciting to see. Uh, but still, I think there's probably more capital here in the U.S. Um, but I think you know the Latin American market is the ecosystem is growing really nicely right now, and I think you know we are po poised to have 
you know, global companies coming out of Latin America, which is what we've always wanted to, to be on the map. So I think that's, that's what we're excited to see. Any final recommendation for a successful capital raising? Um, I'm not sure that there's one, you know, there's one thing that, that, uh, that you can recommend. Again, I think it's, it's all about, you know, knowing, knowing who you're pitching, how to pitch them, uh, knowing your business and really, I, I think having a command of your own business is really critical. Know the metrics really well. What is driving your business? If you're, if you're asked, what are the key indicators of your business? If you can't rattle off the five indicators, how they've grown, how they've changed. If you can't say, this is what's not going great, but this is how we're addressing it. Um, those are key questions you need to understand about your business. And an investor wants to have comfort that the people they're giving money to really understand their business and really know what they're doing with their model. And you know, nothing can, can scare someone off if you don't have basic answers to how you, how you run your business. Great, thank you so much, Antoine Colaco, partner of Valor for this conversation. It's a pleasure having you today. Thank you.